Hello and welcome to episode 69 of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and today I'll be teaching on Ephesians chapter 4. If you look at the book of Ephesians, uh, you could almost split it into two separate parts. We have chapters 1 through 3 that cover most of Paul's kind of theological arguments, whereas chapters 4 through 6 enter into a more practical segment of this book where he gives instructions to the believers in Ephesus. I'll be looking again at chapter 4 today where we'll focus in on church unity and also maturity maturity as a Christian or sanctification as a Christian, and then we'll end up with uh, almost sort of feels like Proverbs in a sense of some practical uh, ideas or instructions for Christian living. I think you will enjoy it. We've got a lot to cover, so let's jump in right now with Ephesians 4. Okay, so as we uh, do kind of enter in uh, with this question of unity, I asked that opening question um, because obviously a lot of us have dealt with that. A lot of people have, have kind of lived through that. Now, some of you may have even had parents who were preachers or ministers uh, that kind of had to deal with that directly, and that can be an even scarier time. Uh, maybe had dads or elders that had to be a part of those decisions, uh, which is a lot of stress. Um, it's also a terrible pun, and it was unintended at first, but Ephesians can also be split into two parts. So that's why I started with that idea. Um, and what we'll look at is we'll look at chapters 1 through 3. We've already done that. So if you've been in here, you know that. And one through three uh, kind of cover more of Paul's theological arguments, whereas four through six get more into the practical. Okay? So I get to kick that off. And four in particular, uh, we're going to look at, again, unity, maturity, and then some practical instructions. So I want to jump in. So if you've got a Bible, and I think at this point, I don't know why every preacher teacher always feels the need to say this as an intro. Um, but get out your Bible. I'm sure you have something that, that will be a Bible. Hey, how's it going? It's good to see you, Kevin. Um, we're going to start with verses 1 through 6, and I'll be looking for readers. So whoever can read loud and proud. Taylor's, he's getting ready for, for his role as Jonah, so I'm going <laughs> to give Taylor some stage time here. Uh, are you good with that? Good. He's growing a beard just to play Jonah. I'm very impressed with his method. Um, all right, verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Great. Perfect. All right, so we won't cover everything today. I'm going to try and you know hit the high points. I want to start with verse 1. Uh, and so, as a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received, and specifically that part on the uh, living a life worthy of the calling you have received. Um, Eric, there's Eric. It's great, perfect timing. You hit my notes. Uh, he talked about, and correct me where I'm wrong, you mentioned uh, having a breakfast with a friend who said they regretted not living enough for God each day. Is that the way you said that? Yes. Okay, good. Um, maybe you could say it like he's not answering his call often enough. Is that accurate? Yeah, like he hadn't done enough for God. Uh, yeah. Perfect. Well, that stood out to me. Um, is there anyone in here that feels that same way? Is that sort of a burden that you carry? If you're the person that was having breakfast with, breakfast with Eric, then yeah, you're like, yeah, because that, that's what I said. With me, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess is there someone that might feel like there was a point in life where you could have chosen to do something differently, like in terms of a vocation, 
or maybe you didn't pick that and you do you like carry around regret about that is there anyone that feels comfortable sharing that I remember a distinct point, it was uh, just finished sophomore year and had come back to Jonesboro to be a youth intern, I won't go all the details of that, but was offered to be a, a college minister or to continue on with dental education, pre-dental. And I remember like feeling like this was like real contingent on me to make a good decision and pray and think about it. And my heart just felt like I needed to go and um, first off, find my wife. That was like the, the real big thing and I did, it was great. Uh, but also I just felt like I should be a dentist. But I've always sort of carried this idea that in that moment, I sort of promised to God, he almost like kind of wager with God, like if I become a dentist, I'm gonna try and find a way to use that for the kingdom. So if I ever feel guilty, it's in the way that, I, you know, I don't feel like I've really delivered on that promise as it were. So I try, you know, but I think that's something that I, I struggle with. Um, there's also this question of, do we feel like culturally in this, this moment, is it more common that people aren't answering the call, as it were, or maybe even you could say, are we not leading worthy lives as much as maybe people did traditionally? Um, and I don't have an answer to that, but I think that's something to kind of think through. Like, is it more common today that because of life or culture or whatever that we're less likely to respond to our call or to even be listening and listening for that call? Uh, there's a book uh, that David actually recommended, and we read through some of it, by a guy named Leon Cass. If you're taking notes for the quiz later, Leon Cass. Um, it's called Leading a Worthy Life, Finding Meaning in Modern Times. And what he posits is that this is true, that culturally we aren't not only like heeding our call, but that we're not even aware of what leading a worthy life even means. So I do want to give a little bit of a lengthy quote here, and this is what he says, kind of his thesis statement. Young people are now at sea regarding work, family, and civic identity. Authority is out to lunch. Courtship has disappeared. No one talks about work as vocation. The true, the good, and the beautiful have few defenders. Irony is in the saddle, and the higher cynicism mocks any innocent love of wisdom or love of country. The things we used to take for granted have become, at best, open questions. The persons and institutions to which we once looked for guidance have ceased to offer it successfully. Today we are super competent when it comes to efficiency, utility, speed, convenience, and getting ahead in the world, but we are at a loss concerning what it's all for. This lack of cultural and moral confidence about what makes a life worth living is perhaps the deepest curse of living in our interesting time. So I think it's something to, to think about. You know, if we aren't living up to our potential or we aren't heeding our call or living a worthy life, obviously that's something that you know, we should try and figure out and, and react to. And I think we should seek to change the culture here in the church, obviously, but I think just in the world at large. 
Um, so I got thinking down this sort of the, going down this rabbit hole of calling. And you hear people even say that like I felt called to do this or I felt called to the mission field. And to be honest, like I've always been a little uncomfortable with that idea because I don't know what that means. Like I don't you know exactly know what that means. Now in my life, when I talked about the dental school versus the college ministry option, like I felt in that moment like that the options were laid out. Like it felt real like divine in a way that in other times in life I don't. Like I don't wake up on Monday and feel called to you know do something, but in that moment I did. So I, I feel like I have a sense of what that would be like. Um, and we're not going to get into what it means to be called because that would be like the whole class. Uh, but there's a few different calls. I think it's important to maybe parse these out just so we understand them. So I will write them. Where I'm taking a, a, a cue from you in writing. So I have no slides today, just the title slide. We'll see. You have nicer handwriting, I think. All right. So there's three basic calls. I think I have three calls in here. Yep. All right, there is the call to salvation. There is the call to sanctification. And then there's the call to service, or you could say it in a way like vocation or work. Okay, so call to salvation, that one's like pretty obvious. Yeah, depending on where you come from theologically as a background, whether you're Calvinist or not, you would say that there's a general call that we all experience. This would be the call that you get from nature, just from existence, from a conscience, from what we say in Romans 1, like you can look up into the stars and say, eh, probably something bigger than me did this, you know, and so in that way we're without fault, at least from a general standpoint. Then what comes next is you either have an external or an effectual call, and I won't go into the theology of that, but it basically just means do you hear the gospel and believe it or are you forced to believe it? So however you believe that. But basically we're called to turn away from our sins, turn towards God, and be saved. And so we get that. Like we know what that call is. Okay. And I think we'd all say that we've experienced that call in some form, right? Yes. Okay. All right, the call to sanctification, I, I think we would say that we've all experienced this. This is the idea that we're made more and more like Christ each day. That's why we come to church. We'll talk about that here in a second when we talk about maturity. And the last one is maybe maybe the more interesting one, the one that I'm kind of getting at, is this call to service. And this is a calling related, related to one's life work. And this, this is the idea that God has chosen to carry out his work in the world through those of us who are saved. Okay, so it kind of goes sort of in this order. So once we're saved, there's this call to service or there's this call to work that is special that God gives us. And there's a lot of verses that say that we should work and that's what we're built for, that's what we're made for. Um, maybe that's why when I'm at home with the kids, I'm like, I really just want to go to work. Maybe that's because God wants me there. I think that might be it, but anyway. Um, there are some examples of this call to service being direct. So like biblically, we look at like the story of Amos and grant, granted you look at the story like Abraham and Moses, like clearly they were directly told like, go and do this in a way that I almost wish like my day could start. All right, God, tell me what you want me to do. Like, and then I could do it. It'd be easier. Uh, but Amos has one that I think we don't talk about as often that I like, a direct call to service. Um, he was called by God. He was, he was just like a, a shepherd, you know, humble rural life. And he journeyed to the northern kingdom of Israel with a divine warning. I don't want that direct call. But I mean, if I could get a direct call, it'd be great. But uh, Amos 7, 14 through 16, he says, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. So, uh, pretty great. Maybe as sort of a counterpoint to Jonah, who was called, didn't really want to do it, Amos did it. Um, 
So I guess I would say this. God, I would say, does not give most people a direct, like, unmistakable call, like a, like a voice in the night that, like, Samuel hears or something. Um, I don't think that's the way that he calls people. I think it's probably more often done through guidance and less dramatic forms. So Bible study, prayer, Christian community, individual reflection. But I do think it's a duty of the church to help people find that call and discern that call. And if someone decides, you know what, I'm going to be a missionary, I'm going to be a preacher, I'm interested in this, that we foster that and we encourage that. And so I think it's something to kind of keep in mind. All right. So let's move on into Christian unity a little bit. How do we keep unity as a church? Can you answer that in a few words? How do we keep unity as a church? No? Okay. Um, Here's what Paul says, verse 2, and Taylor read it. Be humble, gentle, patient, bear with one another in love, and make every effort to keep unity through peace. Do you feel that if we did those things, if we were humble, gentle, patient, uh, we, we bore with each other in love, and we made every effort to keep unity through peace, do you think that we would keep unity as a church, yes or no? Brian, do you think so? Oh, you're good. Sorry. <laughs> I asked the wrong I'm sure you would have said yes or no. Peter, what do you think? Well, Peter read my mind. It was a very good answer, Peter. Um, literally the direction I'm going in. Um, here's here's a, kind of the question I would ask. Do you think the church today, and we'll just say the, ch- the church in general, do you think that we are more interested in unity or biblical truth? I still haven't pulled my elder card. I've got, I'm, I'm saving it for a good question. All right, let me ask it this way. Are you more interested? Well, no, you're not going to answer that. Um, <laughs> uh, well, let me say this. The Church of Christ that you grew up in, if you grew up in the Church of Christ, you may not have. Uh, do you feel like your church was more interested in unity or biblical truth? Truth. truth. People who grew up in really conservative churches have a very quick answer to that. Truth. <laughs> um, I would say, you know, it's always a, always a balance, right? I don't know what the percentages are. But I grew up around churches, certainly, that seemed to be more interested in truth than unity. Oh, come on, Dave. That's not what I saved my card for, if you'd ask that kind of a question. What is, is, I guess, you know? Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, to the degree to which we know what is true, I think there are certain things, you know, we would say that are of a primary nature doctrinally, you know, that we should champion. I, I think, obviously, a I'm pointing at Molly. I don't know why I'm pointing at Molly. I'm not trying to point at Molly. We've talked about conservative churches before. That's why I'm pointing at Molly. Um, that champion things that I don't think fall under the purview of what we should champion is true to be that big of a deal. Churches putting over, you know, kitchens and things. I don't. I don't think that's. Well, like for instance, my dad will not come to first service because there are women singing on the praise team. Right. Well, that's. I don't go to that service either for that reason. So. Well, we talked about it the other day, and he's, he's, he is 
just feels like that is like that is a blurry line and a slippery slope, if you will, of women leading men. Sure. But I don't. But I didn't get to the point that I was like, well, what about if they were sitting down? Like, you know, the, like, you know. Sure. But that that to me is feels like a really funny line in the sand to draw. That's like, you know. Yeah. <coughs> Unity is yeah. is based on yielding to one another. then I won't read my next couple lines I have here. Um, Yeah, sure. I I think, so like Romans 14 concept of like the weak and the strong and the the weak should, you know, the strong should should concede to the weaker brother or whatever. Um, I think the challenge with that, and we're not going to go completely down this road, is it's a slippery slope perhaps to someone to have women singing. It's a slippery slope to give in to the guy that is not comfortable with that. Uh, You know, so if you're a church leader and you're, trying to, 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 to parse out you know, the direction of a church and you have, it seems, there's always going to be an issue that someone's going to take issue with, whether it's the thermostat or, or whatever. Um, and so you have to decide from a unity standpoint in the grander sense you know, where, where to make those decisions, which is why I'm thankful that Dave's an elder and I'm not. You know? um, so I think you know, what, is, what is opinion and what is doctrine are different. Um, and obviously, you know, women on a praise team is, is not necessarily a doctrinal question or at least not in a primary or secondary sense but it depends on who you are you know it might be to you um, so that that becomes really complicated and as I talk about it I don't like talking about it I like what you say uh, and I agree with that I think there is always the, the case where if you're a Democrat or Republican you know uh, whatever you're red you're blue you're going to look at the other person as if they're an idiot and which is never almost never right you know um, so, well, it's almost never right. Sometimes people are idiots. Um, see, it's so, it's so difficult talking about areas of gray. Um, well, here's what I would say. The Church of Christ, it, like at least in the last 50 years, at times has view, been viewed as someone that's championed, championed uh, truth or biblical truth over unity. Okay? Um, and a lot of churches have split over a lot of different things. And if you want to, you know, make that funnel so narrow you're inevitably going to push people away and I think that's a challenge at the same time I think in this cultural moment I think we're probably more apt to go the other direction and champion unity over truth that's the whole point I'm trying to get to um, and I think that's a danger that we need to be aware of and it's one of these things is you don't realize it's like boiling a frog in water you know if you do it slowly they don't notice they don't jump out of the pot and so I think we're, we're perhaps getting to a point where we have in reaction to those years of championing truth over unity now we're championing unity over truth and we may have gone too far down that road to realize um, 
I talked to David. David's wishing I wouldn't quote him now, but I'm going to. Um, he said this. I thought it was really smart. We're texting back and forth about this. Um, and I'll allow David to speak up and to correct what I say wrong. But he said uh, he thinks this is a problem area that comes from Church of Christ theology that emphasizes congregational autonomy and looks very skeptically at theological tests beyond that of believing the Bible. I largely agree with the principles in our movement that sought to seek unity by de-emphasizing creeds and statements of beliefs, but I think that it has become obvious that we may have gone too far. Which I think is to say it's the challenge of the Church of Christ. I think we try and take a first century, really biblically based approach. We try and be an ecumenical movement in the early uh, 19th century but it does get us to a point where it's hard from church to church to know what we believe and to sort of universally say this is what we believe. Whereas you look at like the Southern Baptist Convention, they know what they believe on certain things because they get together and they vote on it and it's sort of passed down. Um, I don't think that's biblical per se, but I think it does make some things simpler. Um, and I would say along these lines of the progressive and conservative, as you're talking about it, we may or may not agree on this. Um, but I think it's, at least in the church I grew up in, it was, if things were going to slip from a doctrinal standpoint, it was going to be the progressive among us that were to blame. That, that was kind of the, the, the light in which I grew up. But I think it's also possible that the, the most conservative among us could be to blame if they're not uh, aware of how the culture is changing, okay? And maybe it's the moderates too, I don't know. Um, but I think we do need to be aware from just a cultural standpoint that our culture is certainly shifting away from truth and towards ideas of unity um, or just getting along or from a relative standpoint, things being good for you that maybe aren't good for me, but it's all good because it's all your truth, okay? And I may have lost everyone in that. So let's move on. Um, the one section, this is a super famous section, verses four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What I like about this section, it's, it's beautiful. It repeats the word one, which is nice, but um, it's also one of the earliest versions of Trinitarian theology or the Trinity. And so I think it's kind of cool to see that where you have one God with three parts. You have the Father, it says, who is over all as the head. We have Jesus who is through all, like a mediator. This same kind of phrasing is used in Ephesians 2.18 where it talks about Jesus dying on the cross and mediating for us. And then, and the Spirit who is in all. So we have one God and Father of all who is over all, the Father, and through all, Jesus, and in all, the Spirit. Um, and it's a unifying statement from a doctrinal standpoint. And certainly it's to say that we can champion unity all we want. We can be at peace with one another. We can be humble with one another. But if we aren't holding to truths as central as the Trinity that were central in 60 AD when, when Paul wrote this, it's not going to amount to much. Okay, We'll be a great civic club that gets along and does some cool stuff for people in the community. But if we aren't championing these basic truths that were established 2,000 years ago, it's not going to mean a whole lot. Okay, So I, I don't think we can concede those things. So I think maybe in a conversation on unity, it makes sense to then transition into a conversation on maturity um, because I think it's important. So I think if we just remain as, as babies and children from a theological standpoint and we just seek unity with peace and being nice to each other, that eventually is going to wash away. And so I think that maturity is, is an integral part of that. Okay, David, I'm going to give you a chance, 30 seconds, if you want to correct anything I said. No. Here's your chance.
Um, usually, like, reads like history lesson. Eric does a good job of kind of teaching class about like the history of what is the Church of Christ. So, I, the idea was like a union myself. A bunch of um, the Christian world that time was divided over like how to interpret creeds and documents from Christian history. So, we have all these denominations. The end of the story didn't work out exactly like it maybe the uh, originator of our movement hoped. But the hope was. Let's ignore all these creeds, and let's just say we believe the Bible, and let's unify around the text in the Bible, which I, I think I um, affirm that. I think that's a good strategy. Like, let's not argue about what the Nicene Creed means and make three different denominations. Let's just say, if you believe the Bible, you can be in our denomination. And I, I think that's maybe especially a good strategy in a Christian culture, but as our, our culture becomes more secular, uh, maybe even post-Christian, depending on how you want to think about it, um, there are... Um, there are opportunities to interpret scripture differently, right? And um, then, then there's no group uniting the Church of Christ that, that kind of establishes and, and teaches what the doctrine is per se. So I don't want to be a Southern Baptist, but I do think there's some strength and they, they have really good, thoughtful people of Christian wisdom kind of explaining what church doctrine is. Whereas in our movement, if some church down the road just kind of gets a crazy idea and the elders want to vote on it, they can, like, change church doctrine. And so I don't want to, like I said, I don't think we need a church Christ convention. But I, I do think we ought to recognize because of our church government structure, we're prone to theological errors in ways that other denominations wouldn't be because they didn't make this commitment 150 years ago to, to church autonomy and to rejecting the creeds as authoritative. Does that make sense? Great. Yeah, it was good stuff. Um, yeah. Just something to think about. I'm sure we've thought about it and talked about it, and we'll move on. Um, who would like to read verses 7 through 16? Anyone? Anyone? I'll do it. All right. Thank you, Dave. But to each of us, grace has been given as, as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives. What does he ascended mean? I got it. You're good. Every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Don't, we got technical issues. Sorry, Dave. Sorry. That's why we all need paper Bibles, and if you don't, you need to go to somewhere else. Um, so let's see. 
why do we get together for church on Sundays? That's my, my immediate take from this segment. Um, it's something that's traditionally, again, like would that have even been a question? Um, we're listening to a podcast right now called This Cultural Moment, and it's pastors from Portland, Oregon, Sydney, Australia, and they discuss how the culture of the church is changing, and they talk about how people consider it regular church attendance if you go every fourth week, which growing up is crazy. Um, even at once a week is not regular church attendance where I grew up. It would have been, where were you Wednesday? And we missed you Sunday night. And we also missed you Tuesday night at the gospel meeting. You know, So um, it's just different. But why do we go to church together on Sundays? Or why do we gather together as a church in a building on Sundays? Verses 11 through 13. Here's why. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service, which we talked about and I erased. Why did I do that? Why? Why did he equip his people for works of service? So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Okay? So we're saved. We take that call of salvation. Uh, there's a call of service in there. There's also a call to sanctification. We have to become more mature. Otherwise, we're not really following what we've been called for. Um, in that same podcast, they talk about if the culture is changing, and I think we can say that it is, obviously, how do we remain faithful to the ways of Jesus despite changing culture? Um, how do you think in a changing culture do we remain faithful as Christians? What are some things that come to mind? How do you remain faithful? It brings to mind why I don't like the labels of being conservative or progressive is because those force you to either, in the wake of something different, to either hold strong or to change. And I don't think that's always the right way. So, so dynamic, I don't know if that's the exact term. I have to think through it a little bit more, but maybe just a willingness to reevaluate regularly. Um, so I think of it like if you have a home, you get it inspected once a year to make sure that you know, the foundation is strong. If you go 30 years without inspecting something, it's, it's very likely that the foundation has completely wasted away. You know, if you had termites for 15 years and done nothing about it. I think our faith is that way. And, I, and when I speak of our faith as a house, I always think of my foundation was not laid by me from a faith perspective. It was 
laid by my parents and probably in part by their parents and the people I went to Crowley's Ridge Academy with and things like that. If I've not gone and inspected that or maybe even relayed some bricks as, as needed, then that's not good. You know, that's, that's not good. So, uh, but if we go about it in the ways of being a progressive or conservative, uh, I don't really think that's always, we shouldn't label ourselves in that way, I don't think. Um, so the two things I had in mind, that's great, it's great thoughts, is what they say is that we should keep the practices and we should be in community together, okay? Uh, which plays into this idea of going to church. Um, they also ask this question of how do we keep practices when we're so distracted? I think that's the one thing that will probably most characterize our generation is how distracted we are. Uh, more than any other generation before, our, our attention span on a scientific level is getting shorter and shorter because we're patterned in that way. You look at movies and just how quickly the cuts are. I love movies and the, 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 the tempo or the speed of uh, edits in a movie is way shorter than it used to be. Go watch a movie from the 50s or the 60s. Now go watch like you know, a Marvel movie. It's, you know, there's a thousand more cuts. Um, and it's just because we, 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 we are patterned to be more distracted. So they recommend that in, 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 the, in the way the culture is now to wake up and instead of checking your phone, read a psalm and pray, uh, try and distance yourself from your phone. I know Eric calling out again, he's not carrying a phone around anymore, he just has his watch. I think things like that are great. I think we, we are really gonna have to do that. You think of like monks historically that intentionally took themselves out of uh, the general population. They went up, you know, up high and, and they were quiet during the day. Why were they doing that? They're trying to grow closer to God. They're trying to get more in touch with their spiritual side and I think now we're so distracted by things that it's almost impossible so we have to keep the practices we have to keep reading our Bibles we have to keep praying we have to keep being in communion with God but we also have to be in community and also one thing that's true of our culture is, is that we're less comfortable in community than we've ever been before we're more comfortable on our own or behind a computer and so we're gonna have to retrain people on both in both of those regards how do you become less distracted so you can focus on things that matter and then how do you live in community when you're not comfortable with that People have anxiety now and they have to bring animals on planes for the flying, but also just like to be around that many people. It's crazy. So, all right, a couple more things. Maturity. Now we're going to move into verses 14. This, this jumps out at me. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. This reminds me of in 2 Timothy where it talks about, you know, teachers will come along and and they will get people to kind of believe, you know, basically we will choose teachers that we agree with, you know, uh, that maybe are, are false prophets and things like that. Um, here's a question for us. Are we maturing as Christians? And if, if you can't answer that with an affirmative, uh, it, then you need to be able to. But I would say this is that we're not the first to struggle with this. A couple of verses I'm just going to read really quickly. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you were still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy, a jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So, I mean, I, that strikes to my heart as much as anybody. I think, you know, if we're still, like, desiring milk and we're 35 years old, 
like, what, what's wrong with you, man? You know, like, why, why are you not more mature? And why am I not more mature? And uh, I think some of that comes down to simple things like, am I praying every day? Am I reading my Bible every day? I do take a little bit of issue with this idea of by this time you ought to be teachers. I think it's important to say this is that the only way you can serve God or be mature is not by standing up here and, and teaching or by being a preacher. Like that's not the only, you've, it's not like you've only arrived if you're an elder or whatever. Um, and so I think it's important to think of the body of, of the church or of Christ in this way. Verse 16, it says, From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. It reminds me of Romans 12, 4 through 8, where it says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members uh, one of another. And then he goes on to list out the different gifts that each member of the body has. And so we've heard it before, you know, the hand has a certain job that the foot doesn't have. And so what I'm here to say is, is that part of unity and part of maturity is not to say that everyone needs to, to grow up to be a missionary or to grow up to be a preacher or a teacher. It is to say that if you're a leg, an arm, or because of your specific talents, you have a certain purpose, that you grow up into that and you mature into that. And so there's a lot of things that can be done in this church to help you know, uh, support its unity and also that are signs of your maturity as a Christian that aren't, again, teaching or having some, you know, being Jonah and BBS. Um, and we could list off those things, but we're not going to. All right, I really do want to get through this. I'm going to take five more minutes, and I, it's just one page. Um, we're going to read through this quickly. It's the section I'm spending the least amount of time on. Um, verses 17 through 32, can someone read that? Clint, can you read that? Yeah. Great. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belonged to your former manner of life and is corrupt with his evil desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Thank you so much. All right, I want to look at this idea, but first, uh, I love superhero movies. There's been a billion that have come out in the last 15 years. Uh, there's one scene that's practically in every superhero origin story, and do you know what it is? There's probably more than just one, but there's one that comes to mind. It's the moment when the superhero first puts on their outfit or their costume. 
pretty much every movie. And I'm sure there are, there are you know exceptions where you know it's maybe Thor or something like that. But um, Iron Man, Batman, Spider Man, Ant Man, Shazam. If you saw that, uh, in Captain Marvel, she has the suit, but she changes the color when she's ready to ready to roll. Um, and so that's what I think of. That's a middle image I have. That moment where they put it on. They're now, maybe they had the powers, but now they're focused. They sort of know what they're after. And verses 22 through 24, we see that. We get this idea of we put off our vices and we put on our virtues. And it's almost this idea of putting on new clothing. So taking off our old outfit uh, and giving that up to put on our new outfit. And there's obviously a lot of Christian imagery that, that plays on that same idea. Um, but I like that. And it's almost this idea of like Clark Kent becoming Superman, but staying that way, right? And that's how we should think of, in, in some ways, of you know, being a Christian, how we live as a Christian. Well, we put on this suit and we keep it on. We don't take it off, okay? We keep it on, all right? Why, why would Superman take off his costume if he had the option? You know, he'd want to be Superman all the time, I think. Um, and so we have been made new. We were once lost. That's the old self, but now we have a, a new self, okay? There's also this, the Spider-Man line, that with great power comes great responsibility. It gets used all the time, right? Because it works with Christianity and we like it. Um, but this is true. We've been, we've been made from the very get-go to be like God, to be holy and righteous in a way that we aren't naturally. Um, and so we need to live that way. Uh, last thing I'll say is, I'm so sorry. I know I've gone long. Um, this idea of don't let the sun go down on you while you're still angry. I, I think anger and I think holding on to anger is one of the things that's most acting against unity in a church. Um, I think if you're letting you know, the sun go down in your anger, meaning you're letting it dwell, you're letting it fester, you're letting it get worse, it's not only going to affect that relationship, but other relationships. So you've got to work at that, myself included. I think anger has its source in pride in the sense that you, know, you think of a synonym like indignant. And indignance is the idea that things are not fair. Um, or it said another way that well, I wouldn't have acted in that way and that's why you're angry at someone because this isn't fair, this is unjust. And who are we to say what's just and unjust? But it's such a prideful, prideful statement to be angry at someone. So my challenge is to use, if you have a friend or family member that you're angry with, uh, send them a text or an email or give them a call. And I don't think you give them a call waiting for them to apologize, I think you apologize to them. Um, and that's a huge statement and I know there's a lot more that goes into that, but anyway. Um, and I think the reason why we do that is that chapter 4 ends with the best reason why holding on to anger is so silly, and it's the line, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. And so if Christ forgave us, if God forgave us despite all the things we've done, uh, I think we can surely forgive each other. All right, so today we looked at two questions. How do you achieve unity and maturity? I don't know that we answered either one, but we tried. And then also, how should we live our lives? Peter Snell is up. You're on deck for chapter 5. And really, I think chapter 5 starts with an answer to these questions that chapter 4 is asking, and I'll read it, and then I'll get you excited for next week. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay, I know we're beyond time, so I'm going to stop. I will say it's so hard. <laughs>